I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You buy long-term securities, you drive up their price, you drive down their yield. My colleagues and I are acutely aware that high inflation imposes significant hardship. The stock market is doing extremely well, which means to me jobs. Because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas. All of their red ink is really our black ink. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, the world really is now in the grips of an economic downturn, isn't it? Inflation is rising more and more. Wages aren't keeping up. And in the UK, just for good measure, the government is making cutbacks as well. Where does it all end? Well, during the last global financial crisis, people started revisiting the work of Hyman Minsky. Would he help us now? And what did he stand for? What is a Minsky moment? And when will we next see one? Uh, we're a long way from it now, I think. So how different would the situation be now if Minsky's views had been more accepted? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Uh, well, you've probably heard the expression, the Minsky moment. In fact, if you're a keen follower of uh, Steve's work, you'll know that Hyman Minsky has been pretty influential in Steve's thinking as well. Uh, even Janet Yellen, Steve, said uh-huh. at the onset of the global financial crisis in 2007 and 2008, she was the chair of the San Francisco Fed then, yep. obviously mm-hmm. destined mm-hmm. for greater things and to become the, uh, the, uh, the Fed's uh, governor. She gave a speech to the Levy Economics Institute in New York, mm. which is where Minsky studied. Mm. Uh, and she gave a speech called uh, A Minsky Meltdown, Lessons for Central Bankers. Uh, and, uh, yeah, she said, you know, that th- there was a lot to be learned from Minsky. Did she learn anything from no. Minsky? No, and, like, this, this is one of the – I mean, people uh, – <laughs> uh, it just amuses me when I see stuff like this because, like, people say – I love like, the way you laugh. It's like we all have to follow on what's going on in your mind. You're just well, laughing. It, you're, it, you're, it is because, like I said – Steve she, has amused himself already. Okay, the reason I'm amused is that she spoke uh, – and give, give Janet credit for this. Mm. The Levy Institute is a centre of non-Orthodox thought and economics. The history of it goes back to the Levy family who were tailors uh, in the uh, 1800s and 1900s. And I've forgotten which particular member of the family, but one of them was trained as an engineer. And he did his mathematics. In engineering, you learn all thing about uh, sine waves, cosine waves, dampening, Fourier transforms, all this sort of stuff. Uh, And and as part of it, he looked at the cycles that occurred in the prices of textiles. And he saw that there were these booms and busts in the price of textiles. And he, decided, he was actually asked by uh, one of his suppliers, look, there's a boom, you know, prices are going up. You want to buy? And how much do you want to buy? He said, none. Mm. What? You don't want to buy any textiles? Yeah, it's going to get more expensive. Right. He said, no, 
Because he knew that they were going to come down. He again. knew they were going to come down, so they came down like crazy, and all of a sudden, mm. he, he bought dirt cheap, and all the other a lot of the firms were going bankrupt. So he bought this, not just their their, their uh, you know, cotton stocks, he bought their machinery as well, and the family made a fortune. But so was that he, such a big re- revelation at the time? Because the idea of business cycles no, it, it, has it, been it, around for a long time. It, hasn't every it? people people don't look back. People the, the, the one thing we learn from history, we don't learn from history. Okay, mm. but if you do a mathematical analysis of it and find that there are these cycles there, which an engineer would do. Then he spotted there are booms and busts. Uh, there's all, when, this, when this rising price period is going on, it's followed X months later, roughly, by a serious downturn. Mm. I'll buy in the downturn. Right. So he, he, he held his nerve. Everybody was saying, we got to buy now. It's getting more expensive and more expensive. Everybody extrapolates prices forward in infinite rise, you know, just like our Bitcoin friends have done recently. Yeah. Because he saw this downturn coming. And that made him very amenable to non-orthodox economic thinking because all the other stuff was pushing in a different direction. So he heard of Koleski. And Koleski is the, the P- Polish, uh, Michał Koleski, I hope I'm pronouncing his name roughly correctly. He was the Polish engineer trained in Marx's economics uh, because he was in, in, in Poland under the Soviet Union. Um, oh, no, but, no, he was pre, pre, the, pre the Soviet takeover, but he nonetheless had exposure to Marx and Anyway, so he also applied his same engineering thought, and then that became something that the Levy Institute liked, and that was also part of the inspiration for Minsky. Right. So, okay, so that's the strong background, non-orthodox economics, but with an engineering flavour. Right. That's that's the Levy Institute. Now, Janet, okay, <laughs> give her credit. She did turn up once and gave a speech about how fantastic all these derivatives were, because they were going to distribute risk and therefore eliminate it. And so the speech you're talking about is the second speech to Libby. She came along and said, oh, dear, I got that wrong, didn't I? Right. Give her credit again on that front, okay. But she has a reference to Minsky. So I, you know, typical me, I go and read the paper and, ah, don't remember a paper from that date. Went looking at the Minsky reference she has in her bibliography. It's a working paper that you can find in the Levy Institute archives if you dig really hard. But it's not something that was ever published. So I think what happened was Janet would have told one of her staff, I need a reference for Minsky, give me a reference for Minsky. And this staff member happened to have a copy of that working paper. And that's what's put in her list of bibliographies. I doubt that she read it. Mm. And I read it and it wasn't one of his better better papers anyway. Right. So the extent to which she actually learned from Minsky, I think, is pretty close to zero. Right. But, but the but terms have become part of the language. Right. But the top level, I mean, which is probably just, you know, hair level of understanding, in the most simple form is that this idea that if any if anything keeps on if you keep mm. on buying stuff and mm. the price keeps on going up mm. at some point you're going to see a crash that we are, no, that, are that's, to- that, that's 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 minsky's thinking is not mainstream right. the mainstream uh, th- things reach equilibrium I mean, you read but isn't it isn't it in a way equilibrium that if if prices rise and then they crash and then they rise again, you are sort of like a waveform over over an equilibrium. You, you, mean, are, you can be miles away from the equilibrium and always away from it. That's one reason I, I like people to take a look at Lorenz, the Lorenz attractor, which is the model of the uh, of the dynamics of the the weather system, incredibly simplified model. Mm. Uh, but that gives you permanent cycles. And when you do the mathematics on the model, it has three equilibria, all of which are unstable for f- parameter values that are realistic for simulating 
the uh, basically the the dynamics you see when you put a pot of soup on a stove um, and raise the temperature sufficiently, then the patterns you will see in the movement of the fluid, uh, like on an XY. If you sort of look at it like an XY diagram of your you know uh, your your stove and where's the where's the particle of water going to be, then this is the route it's going to follow, mm. and it will never reach the equilibrium. So if you're thinking and saying if the English is going to get to equilibrium, you're in the wrong planet. Okay, and unfortunately, that's why the mainstream has never been able to absorb. In that case, it's moving around the equilibrium, but I guess no, it's been contained by the container it's in. I guess if, if, you, if you do a simulation of the Lorenz mm. model, with the, if there's a model of uh, somewhere in, on the Patreon website, you'll find a, a, several copies of the Lorenz model done in Minsky, mm. my software package Minsky, and the, the 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 defined areas of complete vacancy of space in the phase diagram are the th- location of the three equilibria. But if you were a believer in, you know, the, the, the economy is in or around an equilibrium, then if you saw prices for assets increasing, you would assume, wouldn't you, by your own uh, acceptance of equilibrium, that they are going to come down again because they're moving away from the equilibrium. So they've got to adjust themselves and come down again. So you'd, no, if no, you were no, a believer no, no, in equilibrium, no, 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 you'd no, believe no. in the cycles, wouldn't you? I mean, your, your, your lack of training in economics is showing you, lucky man, uh, <laughs> because that is implying a cyclical path to an equilibrium. Yeah. Uh, when you look at how the neoclassicals think about it, we'll go back to Minsky because we're talking much about neoclassicals and why they can't yeah. understand Minsky. But their their vision of uh, the, the, the core model they use these days is called the Ramsey growth model. And Ramsey, a, a, a polymath called Ramsey, Frank Ramsey, invented this at the age of about 22 and he died in his late 20s. Published a paper back in 1928. He was somebody Keynes was, not he was called a protege of Keynes, but Keynes was blown away by his intelligence. He really was a, you know, a hyper intelligent individual. So he built an elaborate model of uh, what should the save, what is the the ideal savings rate for an economy? Is is there an ideal amount that economies should save? And he's working off on the whole neoclassical thing where savings causes investments and mm. all this sort of stuff. But it was an elaborate mathematical model, and the the punchline for it is that the equilibrium of the model was unstable. Okay? It's got called a, it's got a, a saddle node. If you imagine imagine I gave you a challenge of, of throwing a pea onto three objects and you would win a prize if the pea settled in the equilibrium of the object. One is an upside down hat. Okay, that's pretty easy. Yeah. One is a is a cone pointing the other way. Forget it. You've got to get it right on the point of the cone. The third is a saddle. A horse's saddle. So, if you imagine a saddle, it is feasible. If you get incredible accuracy, you can throw a, a, a you know a ball bearing at a saddle, and it lands right on the horse's spine and rocks up and down, and slowly reaches and it settles right in the middle where your ass goes as a rider. But the reason your ass can go there as a rider is it's unstable in the other direction. Mm. Your legs hang over the ass of the horse. So that's the shape of the equilibria for the Ramsey model. It's a saddle. And that is mathematicians describe that as an unstable system for obvious bloody reasons. Mm. Okay, What economists did is say, oh, that's the equilibrium. Way, way in the future. Right. And he literally called it a bliss point. So you either, so either hit it and stay there or you'll never get there. 
Yeah. So what right. you got to do? They actually, get, you, you 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 can like you mentioned with a saddle, you can actually draw two lines expressing what the dynamics are. One is a line for the along the spine of the horse, and those are two arrows pointing at each other. Yeah. So if you jump on that axis, right. then you'll end then you'll up. Sit, you'll stay. The oh, other okay. ones are pointing away. Okay. Yeah. So you can't you cannot at all allow yourself to get even a minuscule amount off the others. Right. So that's simple. What we simply assume is you're infinitely intelligent. Uh, everybody else is also infinitely intelligent. We all know the future. What's the future anyway to appear in friends? And so you work <laughs> out uh, where the saddle is, and then you and to move where you are to reach the saddle, to hit the saddle, you've got to move from where you are now, which is an unstable point. You're saving too much. Uh, you're not spending enough, for example. So mm. you've got to jump. Your consumption has to be a jump variable. And you jump from where you are instantly to land on that that arrow pointing toward, and then you throw your ball bearing. Right. Now, that's their explanation for the trade cycle is those jumps. Right. So how did... Uh, how can anybody reading that understand anything <laughs> sensible? Okay. And who, who was it who was saying this? Who was... Ramsey back right. in the... But, right. he, but he was doing it in the, in the vision like a... He, his vision was of a single central planner working mm. out the ideal savings rate for a whole society. And then, uh, and therefore, you know, if you were not there, you have to move to this equilibrium Vector, and then you can travel along right. that vector over right. time. And I'm losing track now. How did we get to him when we were talking about Minsky? What uh, was because the... Ramsey's growth model is mm. what the neoclassicals use these days, right. and that has an unstable element to it. But mm. rather than saying, oh dear, because the equilibrium is unstable, therefore the dynamics will be oscillatory around the equilibrium, or you'll have to have some, you expect your price transactions to occur away from the equilibrium. They simply assume we're all hyper-intelligent individuals, all of whom know the future, uh, and, and can therefore predict where the saddle is going to be when it moves and jump instantly to that point. And that's the what's called the real business cycle explanation for business cycles. Right. So they have no effing way of understanding an unstable equilibrium. Right. So that's, that's, this has been a long diversion here. But that's that's why when somebody like Janet Yellen tries to read Minsky, they try to shoehorn him into that way of thinking, and they fail. So um, Minsky's uh, hypothesis, and am I mm-hmm. oversimplifying? Because the way I, I look at this, as you say, as a non-economist, which is a very useful way Extremely of, useful. of seeing the world, yeah, yeah. I just think if, if people have money and they think times are good, then they are probably going to spend a little bit too much. Exactly. Uh, And then they'll get to a point where they go, oh, spend too much and I'm going to hold back. And so when you hold back, you're not spending and probably that's going to catapult the same thinking in everybody else because you're not buying from the person who is going to sell you stuff who has less money and so you start this chain reaction. I mean, that's is that, is that too simple? Am I explaining there, something? There's, there's a cartoon that has that sort of basis to it. Right. Uh, I found a little stock here that will really excel. Somebody says, excel, sell, 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 sell. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then finally there goes absolute mayhem. And finally the person who started says, I'm leaving here. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. 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 <laughs> well, that's it. The herd mentality, isn't it? Yeah, Which, and, and, and so, that is what actually goes. So, we, so neoclassicals to try to hang on to the concept of equilibrium invented the concept of rational expectations, where rational expectations mean the capacity to accurately predict the future. Mm. They abuse the English language. Yeah. If you took the definition and showed it to a sensible non-economist person, this is a definition. Somebody has a model in their mind which enables them to predict the future accurately. What is oh that's prophecy, right? Oh no 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 that's rational. So that's why we all saw the uh, the the 
2000 crash, the, uh, the, the, the yeah, dot yeah. com bomb, and then the so 2008 so crisis. We saw all of that. So yeah. Janet, Janet's one of the many who was, mm. you know, literally praising uh, all the derivatives, all the, uh, you know, of, of CDOs and so on as a way of mm. stabilizing the market, distributing risk, and therefore we don't have to worry That's about why it. That's why we all knew that uh, straight after COVID we'd be hit with this rampant inflation. We all knew that was coming. <laughs> I mean, everyone was talking about it at the time, weren't they? Absolutely. I mean, this avoids a disc- me. yeah. it's a void of discovery for everybody, isn't it's it? It's a total void of discovery. So anyway, that, that's they, they they can't understand Minsky's thinking. So Minsky is completely outside that uh, that tradition. Right. And if you go back and look where he came from, um, his parents were both. I think they met in Chicago, and they're both, they're both Russians and they're both Mensheviks. So they were driven out of Russia by the Soviet takeover by the Bolsheviks because the Mensheviks thought you had to go through a capitalist period. So you had left-wing groups by sheer accident. You know, the 1917 was an accident in many ways. Just the fact that the Communist Party came at the dominant group there was one of these quirks of history, but obviously it happened. So, but the people who got in charge were the Bolsheviks, and the Bolsheviks believed that you could jump over the capitalist phase and have a period of, of strong industrialization. The Mensheviks believed you had to go through the capitalist phase to get to the point where you could have a socialist revolution. So when the Bolsheviks won, one of the first groups on the extermination list were the Mensheviks. Right. Okay. So, and particularly when Stalin got in charge. So both... Um, um, Minsky's parents left Russia for America and met, in, I think, in Chicago. So that's the background to him, his family background. Um, he then, and then he, and I'll, I'll give it. So he was very much a capitalist then in his in his thinking. Well, it, it's, it's it's complicated because the family, the parents were both dedicated Marxists, mm. but believed that you should go through the capitalist phase. So moving to America in that sense was a sensible move for them. They would envisage that ultimately America would become a socialist. Right. You think, think this sounds weird, by the way. Yeah. Marx was wrong Good luck with on that, that one. point. Okay, yeah. We've not had another talk on why Marx was wrong on that point. But anyway, um, that's the background. So he would read Marx intensely as a child. Mm. And I know this from his own child because Alan, uh, Alan Minsky, whom I'm a very nice guy, uh, Alan and his father had a, a sort of a sort of falling out one can have with a parent, and then they reconciled when Alan was in his 30s. And Alan asked him, Alan went into the media, alternate media, and then asked his dad one day, look, I want to learn about economics. Where should I start? And he said, this is literally, as he said it to me, dad went into the in his uh, studio, came out and gave me this, he's holding the book together and bent down to us and said, this is your first book. It was a copy of Das Kapital, volume one. Okay. Mm. So that's the background, intellectual background for, for Minsky. So when he came back from the Second World War, because his parents lived through the Great Depression and he was fought in the Second World War, American enlisted um, man, uh, did a degree in mathematics. And then when he began doing his PhD, his, the question he asked himself was, and he put this beautifully in the book I recommend people should read on Minsky called Can It Happen Again, which is a collection of essays. He said, uh, can it happen again, it being a Great Depression? And if it can't happen, what is different about the financial situation system after the World War to what applied before the World War? Mm. He said, that is this question that we, to, to, to be seriously useful, economics has to answer that question. To answer that question is necessary to have a model in which a Great Depression is one of its possible states. 
Right. Okay. Now that doesn't apply to the neoclassical world at all. So that model is the is his financial, financial instability, instability hypothesis. hypothesis. And, and ascent, yeah. I, yeah. And look, we'll talk about that because yeah. uh, I because I, I feel like there's got to be a greater depth to that very much more so. Yeah. Yeah. Than yeah. I than I described. So let's look at the steps involved mm. as he saw it in in just a moment on the debunking economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. We are in the same studio yeah, actually I today. I don't even yeah. notice a difference in sound. We're going to do that for the well for the rest of this year at least, aren't we? So yeah. it's, it's great to have you here. Uh, we'll be back in just a second. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, uh, we, we've taken a while getting you there, but we are talking about uh, Hyman Minsky and the financial instability hypothesis. Mm. So, I mean, I, my very simple uh, explanation was, yes, we stretch ourselves too far mm. uh, and then we uh, sort of a crash follows because we've because we've over, overstretched ourselves. That's mm. a very simplistic way. But is it accurate in its simplicity? Pretty accurate. The, the simple vision that Minsky had was that rather than having what he called rational expectations, which is this neoclassical vision about a capacity capacity to accurately predict the future of the economy and to jump onto the unstable path to reach it. Mm. He said we get euphoric expectations. And it was a he said he said the natural starting point to analyzing a cyclical economy is a period after a crisis. There's been a recent crisis, but the economy hasn't completely broken down. So you start from that point of view. Everybody's remembers the past crisis. Everybody's conservative about the amount of debt they'll take on. So there's very little borrowing going on. Yeah. But then the people who do borrow money because the economy economy hasn't completely crashed. The people who do borrow money with relatively safe margins are able to finance their investment. And then the leverage effect means, of course, that they come out ahead. So people start to look around and see that the people who are borrowing money now prospered. And quote, unquote, this is a direct quote from Minsky, it pays to lever. Yeah, that starts. So people then start to borrow more money. Now, this is where the endogeneity of money, the fact that the banking sector creates money, is an essential part of his logic, uh, though he never spelled it out in the same detail. Did he recognise it, though? He did recognise He didn't do the same technical work that Basil Moore did, who's another uh, deceased but wonderful post-Keynesian economist. Because new, new listeners to the podcast might not get that. And we'll, we'll, yeah. we're, we're actually going to talk about it in a couple of weeks, about yeah. the fact that money is created Money's by... Money's created by bank lending. Yeah. But that was an essential part of lending. Minsky's logic. He said, uh, so said, said for this to happen, there had to be a way that borrowed money can add to aggregate demand. And I, Minsky never worked it out logically. I managed to do that in about 2017. So I can prove that when you have a, a, a money system which creates money, 
rather than you know, lending from Fred to Fred to Joe, which is the neoclassical loanable funds vision. When a bank lends money, it creates money. The borrower borrows not for the sheer pleasure of being in debt, but to spend. Yeah. So that adds to aggregate demand and aggregate income, and it hits asset markets as well. So that expansion of demand causes a boom. Yeah. So in that situation, everybody's starting to boom. The economies are looking fantastic. Uh, people are more and more willing to borrow money. But then the boom itself sets off changes in the distribution of income because – The rich we, are getting richer. The rich are getting richer. The, the, the wage, wage earners who are losing – like they had, had a downturn beforehand, so bargaining power drops, wages have been falling and so on. Now that there's a boom going on, the bargaining power of labor is increasing, wages are rising. Mm. Uh, you also have increasing – Because you're getting to full employment, so people yeah, feel yeah, like they've got more of an ability. And you've also got – this is important too in terms of another generalization of the pricing dynamics. Uh, prices for ordinary commodities – Per unit costs fall as output rises. Yeah. Okay, that's the reality of the real. That, that's real world statistics. You don't have diminishing marginal productivity and rising per unit cost. You've got um, falling uh, marginal cost, and therefore, you, as you get more and more sales, you're making more and more profit. Okay? So it's a very positive feedback at that stage. Mm. Um, but it also, raw materials are necessary. Yeah. And those raw materials are different. This is, again, part of Koleski's thinking, which Minsky was aware of. So this, this would be the case that if you, if you use maybe four components to build a, to build a product, yeah. one, and, and there's demand for that product, there might not be the same increase in demand for all of those four components. Well, the there might, might be a shortage of you, one you of those You can't elements. produce anything without energy. Right. So yeah. your energy yeah. costs are going to be yeah. rising. Okay? So yeah. if your wage costs are starting to rise, Raw material prices, particularly energy, are going to start rising. And the third thing is because you borrowed money from the bankers, mm. you're paying more money out to them as well. Yeah. So that means that the when you get to the peak of the boom, the income levels people are expecting aren't there. But it's not just going to be energy, is it? I mean, if you, if, oh, you, it, if, it, if there's other elements, because you, because if you're saying, well, okay, the, well, see, the, the manufactured side will fall. Yeah. Okay, the raw material side of costs will rise. Yeah. Okay. So and over and over, given this, you know, you you can't produce. Maybe my my, my classic line about energy, labour where that energy is a corpse, machinery where that energy is a sculpture. Uh, so it's absolutely vital to have the energy side, and those prices rise. So all those rising prices redistribute income away from the capitalists, who are the ones borrowing the money, to workers. Bankers and real and, and uh, raw material suppliers. So the profits not what they expect. So the with the willingness to invest mm. declines. When it starts to decline, you borrow less money. So the credit based demand starts to fall as well. And then the same positive process that got you there goes in a negative cascade. So you've got you you you're investing less. You're borrowing less. You're creating less money. The economy goes into a downturn. So you, you will come back down again. And that's the Minsky's explanation for a cycle is this phase of euphoric expectations, too much borrowing money, okay? Mm -hmm. okay? And then you get to the peak. Income distribution changes in ways you don't expect. You don't make the profit you need. Yeah. The first thing you've got to do is remain solvent. So you put all your money into servicing your debt. Your consumption, your investment spending plunges. So investment goes from boom levels to crash levels, and you're back into the next cycle. Yeah, and and, and, and another way of simplifying an element of that, putting it into into yeah. plain speak, yeah. which I've you know because I lived through the the uh, the dot com bomb. Of course, yeah. Where you know, and I was working in that industry where everyone had you know un hugely unrealistic expectations of mm. how much they were going to earn, and even if there was a, an understanding about what the scale of the, uh, the the size of the market was going to be. 
be, yeah. everyone assumed that they were going to take a huge slice of it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and of course, you couldn't do that. So companies started to fold because they just weren't getting the market share that they'd anticipated. Uh, and, that, uh, and that happens. And that, that happened then because that was an extreme. But that happens all the time. A company, yeah. every company is expecting they're going to get more market share than there is a total market and, share and available. This is, this is where you need to revise microeconomics. Stay away from the garbage that neoclassicals do about rising marginal cost and falling marginal revenue, blah, blah, blah. Uh, because what you're talking about is exactly the dynamic the real world has, which causes this instability. So because, like, yeah, let's say you're working for a little software company. I don't know. Let's, let's say a company, uh, let's call it Imagineering. Right. Okay. And let's say the chief executive is a guy whose name is something really ridiculous. Nobody would actually have this name. Let's say Jody Rich. Right. Okay. Yeah. And he might be backed by a couple of other weirdos like, you know, uh, what's uh, – Jamie Packer, that sound right? <laughs> and then who else can we throw into the mix? Oh, one of the Murdochs. Yeah. Can we just say any any examples given in this product? Uh, it's, it's, entirely entirely fictional. Any relationship, yeah. Any relationship to people living or dead. The living is, or dead is entirely coincidence. I'm terribly sorry for that, yeah. Jody and yeah. Jamie. And yeah. I wish we got one of the Murdochs that was. I think it was Lachlan. Anyway, yeah. so they were expanding Imagineering, which was a software vendor, the, the dominant software vendor in Australia at the time in the 1990s. And the, because the market was growing, so fast. They were expanding all their warehouses, expanding their retail outlets and so on. And they had, I think the expansion rate was 130% a year. Now, the thing is, they were doing it. Ashton Tate was doing it. Everybody was expanding because you all think you're going to get more of the market than everybody else. Mm. So you have overcapacity. Yeah. That also feeds into the whole cycle. And again, this is the change. When when you flip your mind from the neoclassical vision to what Minsky was looking at, you might be looking at two different planets. So Minsky is describing the planet we're on. And and a lot of it seems very obvious, doesn't it? It Except, is very uh, obvious, but yeah. But why? Because why, he wasn't really... I mean, the reason why people like Janet Yellen started to look at his work, mm. well, apart from the fact that she'd been invited to talk at the institute where he uh, he, he studied, yeah. so maybe she felt like she had to pay some sort of homage to him. Yeah. But it was the crisis in 2008, which everyone was struggling to explain. So they yeah. sort of turned to Minsky for an explanation because he was a, you know, a, a bit like you and me, really. Never really appreciated uh, fully uh, during his words alive. It was, you know, posthumously, we are going to be, this podcast will be, you know, will be fascinating, absolute gold to everybody. I should actually try to get a rational (laughs) expectation for the gold delivered tomorrow so I can live well now. There we are. Uh, So, um, yeah, so um, there we are. You said completely lost my train of thought now. (laughs) I I don't know how you do that to me. Anyway, what was the, tell me about, yeah, I I know the point I was trying to make. He was, he wasn't appreciated really, was he, when he was alive? And it wasn't until we hit a crisis then people started going and looking forward. forward. Mm. But again, what you find is they completely distort him. Mm. So they try to understand him within an equilibrium framework. Like Janet Yellen was doing. As Janet Yellen was doing. And and consequently, you don't learn the lessons because it simply can't be absorbed. So one of my best mates uh, is a a fellow... A radical from the student days of Sydney University, Rod O'Donnell ended up also being a professor of economics. And Rod and I were speaking at a conference once in uh, Canberra in the same session. And Rod said to the audience, look, I want to make a request of you. Please do not read Keynes. And I said, where's Rod going with this? And he said, because when you read him, you can't help but read him through a set of neoclassical glasses and you completely distort him. Mm. It'd be better off if you didn't even try to read him. Well, the same thing applies to Janet Yellen on Minsky. Well, let me read something that she said, actually, because this was uh, that speech uh, that she gave in 2009... You know, because the question is, having you know said that she's a big fan of Minsky, and we should all go and reread Minsky or read yeah. Minsky for mm. the first time. Um, how should policymakers respond mm. to bubbles? Mm. You know, which is what she was concerned about. So she said that they have to be cautious 
uh, you know, central banks have to be cautious, of course. She said, is the threat so serious that a monetary response is imperative? It would make sense for monetary policymakers to intervene only if the fallout were likely to be quite severe and difficult to deal with after the fact. We know that the effects of booms and busts in asset prices sometimes show themselves with significant lags. In those cases, conventional policy approaches can be effective. For example, fluctuations in equity prices generally affect wealth and consumer demand quite gradually. A central bank may prefer to adjust short-term interest rates after the bubble burst to counter the depressing effects on demand. So I'm not quite sure what that's got to it's do with... It's basically saying I don't want to bother reading Minsky. Yeah. <laughs> Fundamentally. Because, again, yeah. the point that Minsky made about this, he said you can't control these booms with interest rates. Right. Because if you... And this goes back again to the same you know, Imagineering world you and I yeah. lived through yeah. uh, in the 90s and early early, early Yeah, because you can lower interest rates and think, oh, if we lower interest rates, then people are going to borrow and invest. But if the economy is on a downturn, they're not going to They're going to borrow and gamble on asset prices rather than you cause yeah, asset yeah. price bubbles, bubbles instead, which yeah. you're supposedly trying to prevent. Yeah. So, like, but Minsky's point was, if you if you have people who expect to make a twenty five percent gain uh, on their earnings, given the euphoric expectations at the peak of a boom, you've got to put interest rates up to twenty five and thirty percent to stop them. Yeah. Now, there's no way they're going to do that. Mm. So, what you find is that the, the you, it is not the fine tuning um, mechanism they. They think it is, and the reason this applies is because, in their minds, and this is the unfortunately you've got to look inside the mind of a neoclassical to know why we're in the in the, in the you know, cesspool we're in these days economically. They have a the only determinant level of investment is the interest rate. The reason it's the only determinant is we assume rational expectations, mm. so people know the future. Okay, they've got their expected returns from all these various investments, and by putting up the interest rate, you reduce the net present value of those investments. So by simply raising interest rates, you re- reduce the number of, of investments that have a positive net present value, and therefore you reduce the level of investment. Now, Minsky's point was, if you're fiddling with something that's of the order of you know 5%, 10% rate, and you've got people expecting 25% rates of gain, no damn way they're going to worry you much about the interest rate. It's their expectations that are uncertain. And they're not. You don't know the future. You're. You're. And this is where Keynes comes in so importantly as well. Minsky discovered Keynes late. Minsky had already built almost all of his hypotheses before he read the first work by Keynes. Mm. And there, there was, he read in the. He really, and this is a paper I recommend other people to read as well. A 1937 paper called the General Theory of Employment. Yeah. Not the other interest of money. That's oh, the book. Yeah. So he read it and he was in shock. Because he said, he used to say quite literally in one of Minsky's early papers said, if we make the Keynesian assumption that interest investment is controlled by the rate of interest and blah, blah, blah. Now, what it was actually was Hicksian assumption. It was John, May- it was John Hicks's total misinterpretation of Keynes that was seen as being Keynes. And then Minsky, by sheer accident, I don't know how I discovered the paper, read the general theory of employment, was blown away because all the stuff he was talking about uncertain expectations, volatility and so on was in that in that book. And in that, uh, uh, Keynes explained how people actually form their expectations of the future. He said, we don't know the future, it's uncertain. So you simply can't have a model that predicts the future. Even my Minsky mm. models can't do that. Uh, but you start off, you see, so you know it's uncertain, so what do you do? You fall back upon the wisdom of crowds 
but others are likely to be better informed than you are. So you get a crowd effect. Yeah. Okay. And that's exactly what Minsky was talking about. And that's well, he, he named his first major book John Maynard Keynes, not because it was a biography of Keynes, but it was in tribute to Keynes himself. Right. We're going to talk about Keynes next week, by the way, oh, on the, on the okay. podcast. <laughs> so what can, um, in an unusual set of circumstances right now, yeah. uh, because of you know the pandemic obviously mm. stuffed mm. things up. And we're in this unusual position where there's some people who do have quite a lot of money mm. because they you know managed to stash it away because mm. uh, they couldn't spend it during the pandemic, which is mm. a very unusual set of circumstances. And other people who are destitute right mm. now. And then we've mm. got governments trying to claw back money and probably doing precisely the wrong thing. Yeah. Well, not probably, almost certainly doing precisely the wrong thing. So this is not the sort of... Uh, downturn that Minsky would have foreseen. It doesn't sort of fit his model, does it? No, it is different. I mean, there's a range of reasons. First of all, we had enormous uh, demand stimulus out of government spending. Yeah. And if that hadn't occurred, we would be in the middle of a huge financial crisis right now. Mm. Um, so you know, I, I was advocating all the way through, government's got to spend, put money in the hands of people who will go bankrupt if they don't have the money because they can't service their mortgage, can't pay their rent and so on. And even though it was done you know, grudgingly and badly and so on, it was done. Mm. There was a huge injection of government-created money to people's bank accounts. Then at the same time, they couldn't spend them on travel, yeah. couldn't spend them on restaurants, etc., etc. So a lot of pent up demand in that sense. Yeah. So they was, gave too much. I mean, on, yeah. in hindsight, they gave. Well, they no, 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 I, I, there's no such thing. Hindsight, if you gave too little, you know, <laughs> it would have been worse. I, I don't want to yeah, know. Yeah. I don't yeah, want to yeah. describe the world if we yeah, yeah. gave nothing. At well, all. it wasn't targeted enough. Let's put it, it that was, way. It wasn't, wasn't of... well targeted, but yeah. it was still there. Mm. So that's partly. You also had, of course, all the supply chain breakdowns coming out of COVID. Mm. Like we're seeing. I've forgotten an, another province of China apparently is going to lock down right now. Yeah, well, China. Guangzhou is being, yeah, is, yeah. So, is till the weekend. And, yeah. But also, of course, you've got to ship these goods, you know, across oceans. Mm. Uh, in, and, and of course, now you've got to, or at least for a while, you had to give two weeks before you went on board the boat, two weeks after, and people's fuse were getting sick on the way. All this stuff was meaning the cost of production is rising. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So that's, that's a cause of inflation that, funnily enough, isn't part of conventional thinking. They think it's uh, rising wages are causing inflation, okay? mm. or government spending is causing inflation, mm. but not rising or costs. Ha- or there being too much money causing inflation. Yeah, or the usual yeah. t- that, that yeah. sort of stuff. But yeah, yeah it's, it's actually a rise in the cost of production. Mm. So, um, and also, so where would we be then in Minsky's cycle in, in this, or we're just not on that? We're not. Well, uh, yeah, I think in, in that sense, because it's, uh, it's government spending avoided a gigantic crisis. So in that sense, Minsky would give a huge tick mm. to what was done, as badly as it was done, a tick to the fact that, that it was done at all yeah. uh, for that period. But then in the aftermath, you have increased cost of production, and there's not much you can do about it. Mm. Uh, what you have to do is, is is prevent that meaning that people who are the bottom end of the income distribution can no longer afford basic necessities, which is what we're seeing. We're seeing riots in Germany, riots in France, riots in Italy right now. Yeah. Uh, they're much better at rioting than the British are uh, over the cost of living. Okay? And you know people refusing to pay electricity bills and gas bills and things of that nature uh, because they simply can't afford to. Mm. Okay? So you, you don't want to have that situation happen. And then again, you need into government intervention to enable the poor to be able to pay those fundamental costs because if your poor, poor people can't afford to stay alive in your society, you're going to have a breakdown. Here, people can't afford to use public transport to get to where the riots are. That's why it's not happening. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so what, so how would, what would, what, so we're not on the cycle that Minsky was talking about, but we, but to get back, I'm just trying to figure out, yeah, 
Where would he see that we go next then? How would, I mean, even though, you know, no one could predict the future, what would he be seeing? How do we get out of this? I think, again, you've got to get government spending to get, to make it possible for people at the bottom of the income distribution to pay for the absolute necessities of life. Yeah. Okay. The rich don't need to worry about that because they're rich. Okay. They've got enough cash for whatever. But then you are going to, you're going to add to the supply demand imbalance, aren't you? And that there's going to be greater demand for goods that are just not being produced. Most of the price now is going to energy producers. Mm. Uh, And we're now seeing some change in that that supply dynamic. It, it may alter. I'm not going to... So it might sort of sort itself yeah. out if we wait long enough, so long as we make, allow you, people you to get through it. You certainly shouldn't be targeting a 2% rate of inflation. Yeah, yeah. And this, this, this 2% rate of inflation stuff is another neoclassical fantasy. Mm. came out of the work of John Taylor. And Taylor, uh, arch-conservative neoclassical economist, uh, did a sort of backtracking what has been the behaviour of central banks. And what he found is a simple rule that they had a 2% inflation rate target. And they said that's they, they, that's seen what they were doing. So he wrote an equation where the number two actually turns up three times. Quite strange in the equation, saying that central banks should increase interest rates at twice the rate of the change of inflation, and that will stabilise around the two percent target. Now it did actually describe what the central banks have been doing, roughly speaking, in past history. So it became taken as an immediate, sensible rule for central banks, and they built it into their dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models and so on. The Taylor rule is there. So they believe by varying the interest rate that they can control the rate of inflation. We're back in the mindset of a neoclassical economist. We're not on this planet. Mm. So the obsession with returning to that 2%, uh, I think, is partly destructive. We could survive 5 and 6% inflation for a while yeah. without... without uh, but if, if you if you if you well, the point to- is it it's balances out anyway, doesn't it? It's like if if something goes up by five or six percent, mm. and, and unless you're, you're getting some sort of compound effect, I mean, if, it's like well, energy, did- for example, is shot up in price. Yeah. But if oil stays around a hundred dollars, then the oil inflation next year would be zero. Yeah, yeah. Oil becomes negative. That's, that's and that's what we're seeing yeah. in the numbers as well. But yeah, in, in terms of. Um, the, the the fear has always been of a wage-price spiral. Mm. And that's literally, if you look back at Phillips, who's somebody, again, people have completely distorted. He's another person we should devote a good podcast to. But in his original 1957 paper on the, the on the how changes in money wages cause changes in, 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 in price level, he gave three factors. So the level of employment, the rate of change of unemployment, and cost of living pressures leading to a wage price spiral. That's yeah. literally a quote, wage well, price spiral, is in Phillips. Right. Okay, now, and people say Phillips didn't understand wage price spirals. Bloody hell, he invented the phrase. Right. Uh, but that, what that means, at the moment, we look at inflation running at 9% and wages running at 6 or 4 you haven't, yeah. you haven't got that problem. You yeah. haven't got that problem. Exactly. So, look, you're right, Philip. And we, I feel like we're embarking on a whole new podcast now. So we, we, we probably should uh, use this opportunity to get out of here. Uh, <laughs> but maybe, maybe, yeah, you're right. We should do Phillips on another one. I, I also is going to ask you, you know, how uh, how uh, Minsky built on the work of Irving Fisher as well. So maybe we give Irving, Irving Fisher Fi- and Sean Pater. That's a good combination. Yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll look at that as well. We'll go through some of the. I mean, the, I think that's a good idea, isn't it? Over the next uh, month or two, let's go through a few of these names and look at what yeah. they what they really stood for. And on that next week I want to talk about Keynes and what would you know if Keynes was alive now and he was a consultant to the government and they were saying oh we don't know what the hell should we do Mm. what would he suggest we'll look at uh, that next week that's going to twist my brain cells a bit but I'll give it a try (laughs) alright good to go great to have you in the studio indeed it's fantastic we'll talk to you next week the debunking economics podcast 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.